Well, if you would, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 49, but we're going to kind of finish up part of what I was reviewing last week. We finished chapter 48, and 49 starts really a new section, a section that is emphasizing Messiah, God's servant. But I, I wanted to kind of go back through some key verses. Now, I think a lot of people have some very favorite verses in Isaiah, but as I was looking back and kind of reviewing what we've covered so far, there were some verses that kind of stood out a little bit more to me, and this is the list of them, Isaiah 1-4, chapter 5, verse 20, 26, verse 3, 29, 13, and 48, 22. Now, I'm going to go through each one and make a few comments about it and then show kind of what I've noted as far as how these verses interact. And then we'll actually get into chapter 49 today, uh, Lord willing. So the first verse that struck my attention or got my attention was chapter 1, verse 4. Isaiah's opening his writing to the Jewish people. He says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. And this is the phrase that caught my attention. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger, and they are gone away backward. And probably some of the reason that this verse caught my attention and stuck with me even as we've moved on and we're about to start chapter 49 is I see a lot of similarity in what Israel did and what our nation is doing. Those of us that have heard about our forefathers 200 years ago know that there was a strong belief in God. Not everyone believed in God, but there was a strong Christian value system, Judeo-Christian value system. And sadly, this can be said of our nation today. And that then leads us to the next verse that caught my attention, which was chapter 5, verse 20. Israel had forsaken God, and now there's a whole series of woes, but this one in particular I thought was particularly pointed and what we also see today. It says, Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And if you look at our nation, we see evil being called good today. And we see good being called evil. Um, how far it extends, I don't know. But it's the consequences of forsaking God. This is kind of a natural response when we as a nation forsake God. It's hard to live through that. It's hard to watch it. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes it gets my stomach a little knotted up. And that's when I go to Isaiah 26.3. It says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee, because he trusteth in thee. And so as we see things around our nation, where our nation has forsaken God, when we see good being called evil and evil being called good, we have to remember who are we trusting in? If you're trusting in politicians, that's not a good thing. You won't have peace by doing it. If you're trusting in God, he will keep you in perfect peace. Um, I think of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken from their homes in Jerusalem taken to Babylon University where they were supposed to be educated in all the pagan practices of that day which haven't changed we have them around today and yet when I read about them they seem to be at perfect peace the same can be true for us but it all depends on where where we're looking are we looking to God for that peace or are we looking to things around us then that brings us then to another verse, verse 29, or excuse me, chapter 30, 29, verse 13. It says, Wherefore the Lord saith, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips they do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by precept of men. This verse caught my attention when we went through it, Jesus confronted the Pharisees and applied it to the religious leaders of his day um, the way that's put in Matthew chapter 15. It says, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching the doctrine for doctrines the commands of men. This one probably caught my attention most because this one concerns the church the most. You hear about churches that accept all sorts of things that the Bible pronounces as evil and they're now calling it good. And they're teaching man's ideas instead of God's word. And so the progression goes on. And then last week, the verse that we ended on in chapter 48 was, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. And while I was in the hospital, I had a lot of time to play on my computer, and so I, I thought an illustration might be helpful here. Um, please don't expect one every week, because I don't go into the hospital every week and have all this extra time on my hands. But it starts with Isaiah 1-4, forsaking God. We can easily see it in our nation, but can we see it in ourselves? It happens. And that's why I picked these verses is because 
we have to oftentimes go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to open our eyes of how are we forsaking him. And notice the little guy in this picture. I'm not an artist, so I, I borrow everyone else's clip art. But what direction is he heading? Okay, toward idols and away from God. That's the way he's walking. Now, if we would say to someone, oh, you're heading toward idols, hopefully that would be repulsive to them. But you know, when we turn our back on God and his word, that's exactly what we're doing. And that leads us then to where we all of a sudden may see something and, and declare evil is good and good is evil. Um, it doesn't take much and very long when we forsake God. Judges put it real well. There's a verse in Judges, actually two verses, one toward the beginning, one toward the end of Judges that said, and every man did that which was right in their own eyes. Versus there's a verse in Deuteronomy that says, and you are to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Everyone does what they think is right. And really what boils down to is forsaking God, every man does what's best for them. That's what they really are looking at. That then gets us to the heart of the matter. Which way is our heart focused? Is it heart... Is our heart focused toward the things of God? Or is it focused toward the things of this world, the pleasures of this world? And it's a discernment issue. But we have to, especially as the church, have to ask ourselves, are we just giving God lip service? Because that's effectively what Jesus said to the religious leaders of that day was okay, you seem to honor me, but it's with your lips only. It's not with your heart. And then, ultimately, that leads to the fact that there's no peace. Nothing that we pursue apart from God is going to bring peace. And so I thought that might be kind of helpful to you to see how those verses kind of really are very interlinked. Um... And we have to be careful that we don't say, well, yes, that's what our country's doing. Well, that may be true, but the better question that we need to ask ourselves is, what about my heart? What am I doing? And by the way, it's never always one way. It ebbs and flows. It's one of those things where we have our ups and our downs, where we may be faithful to God for a season, and then we may turn and forsake God for a season. And then we realize, oh, we did that, and we need to repent. Roxanne, thank you for your patience. I did see your hand. It's burning. Pardon me? Uh, it's burning. I have burning desire to share that. Um, not just to the Lord, but how do we talk to our spouse? How do we talk to our boss? How do we talk to our children? Mm -hmm. Our relationship with God then also affects all of our relationships with the people around us. 
So anyway, I just thought these verses might be helpful to you. Um, we've covered a lot of verses in Isaiah, and there's a lot of other good verses, but these verses I thought were important because we have to ask ourselves, what about me? How do these verses, how do I fit into these? Am I pursuing God? Am I forsaking God? Is my heart in loving God or is it turning from God? All of that being said, introduction to chapter 49. Notice chapters 40 through 48 focused on the supremacy of Jehovah. And throughout those verses, Isaiah would emphasize how God was the creator. In fact, beyond that, he was transcendent above his creation. We're now getting into the part where the emphasis is on the servant of Jehovah. And I'm going to tell you up front, there are times where when I'm reading it, I don't want to pull my hair out, but there's none left to pull out. But I have trouble saying, okay, is he talking about Israel? Because he does call Israel his servant. Or is he talking about Messiah? And you'll see one of those verses today that just left me scratching my head. But chapters 49 through 57, the focus is dominantly on the servant of Jehovah, Messiah. Okay, and so we'll start with the first seven verses and we'll look at Messiah's calling today. Chapter 49, starting in verse 1, it says, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people from afar. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft, and his quiver hath he hid me. And said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught, and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work is with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb, to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered yet, shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him man despiseth, to him whom nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and rise, princes shall also worship, because of the Lord that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. And so as we back up to verse 1, who is being spoken to here in verse 1? 
okay? He mentions the isles, and then he mentions the people that are far away. And so I think Linda's right on target. He's mainly implying the, the Gentiles, but it could also expand to anyone and everyone that's estranged from God. They're far from God. But geographically, when it talks about the isles and people far away, it's not talking to the Jews as much as it is to the Gentiles. And so there's this command to them to listen, to pay attention. And it's mainly speaking to the Gentiles. Now, who is speaking? Because that makes a big difference, too, as to who is speaking. <coughs> okay. Says the Lord hath called me. So who is the me? Because that's who's speaking. Roxanne. Okay. Okay. There's there's obviously some ideas that that some have that this could be Isaiah. But when you go further about who is described there, it's really Messiah. Okay. Is that what you were going to say? Okay. Sorry about stealing your thunder. <laughs> so we know who's being talked to, dominantly the Gentiles, anyone estranged from God. And the person speaking is Messiah. Messiah is basically, it would be like one of us coming up to a friend of ours and saying, let me tell you what God has done for me. Only in this case, it's Messiah saying to the Gentiles, listen to me, pay attention here. God has called me from the womb. How important is a calling? Okay, someone said very. Uh, I'll take that as a, a good answer. Why is it important now? Because God's given them a job. Okay. It shows position. It shows position. It shows that God gave him this job. It wasn't him just saying, well, I'm going to do this. Foundation. Pardon me? Foundation. It also provides a foundation. As I've watched and talked to various ones down through the years of being involved in the church, the people that have questions or just kind of seem to not be certain of their calling, when hard times come, when circumstances become difficult, they have nothing to hold on to and say, this is when God called me. It's kind of like our salvation. It's real important that we not remember exactly what the date was, but we remember the situation and the time. And I'll give you an example. When I was about 10 years old, I remember hearing an evangelist preach on hell and sin. And he came over to my parents' house that evening because they knew him from years before. Four, and I asked to speak to him and I prayed that night to be saved that Jesus would be my savior and forgive me of my sins 
he told me the date and then he told me the time. Guess what? I only remembered the time. Why? Because it was after my bedtime. And so I remember it was 10:15, but I can take you back to that place and say, I know that when I prayed at roughly 10 years old, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but it was around that time frame. That's when God saved me. Well, that's the same idea with a calling. If we don't have a calling from God to do something, then when things get rough and tough, we doubt, should have I done this? Did I jump into the frying or to the fire from the frying pan? And so the calling is important. Well, here Messiah is telling the Gentiles, he says, the Lord hath called me from where? The womb. Now, I think this is a key point, the fact that it was from the womb. Do you ever think of a nation being in the womb? I don't. You may, but I don't. <laughs> I think of a person. And so some, as they read Isaiah, there's times where he calls Israel his servant. But this isn't Israel. This is a person that is being called from the womb. And then he says, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And so his name is important because it's mentioned from his mother. I just realized you had raised your hand. Did you want to add something that I skipped over? Yes, in my Bible, um, it refers to it from the matrix of my mother. He has mentioned of my name. And I researched exactly what Okay. Well, he was the firstborn from his mother. His mother later had other children, but he was the only begotten of the father. Because <laughs> he has the brother James and a few others. Yes, ma'am. This verse is very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the difficulty that you face is the skeptic will say, well, he had to have a father. No one can be born, you know, the, the seed of woman cannot be brought into being a life unless there's the uh, seed from the man also there. But this is conceived of the Holy Spirit, the, the Messiah was. 
and she was still a virgin, yes. And so what we have here is a very interesting thing. Messiah's calling is being brought out here, and the focus has been on the fact that he has a mother. So he's not, this is not Israel, the nation, as a servant. This is Messiah, a single person, as the servant of the Lord. Steve, did you have your hand up? Uh huh. Like, as you're, I feel like I'll refer to you like she is. Like, uh, so as you guys know, or some of you guys know, like my wife and I decided to work with the um, Zero Bible Study or help with the teens. And we and her have been talking about doing it for probably a year and a year and a half. And we just keep hearing, yeah, this, we need to do something, you know. And then uh, the situation happened where teens are trying to live out their um, youth pastor and everything. And, so my wife came to me and again was like, look, I really have a desire. I feel like the young ladies don't have that person that they can kind of share with. And I feel like I want to uh, give them the opportunity, you know. And I said, yeah. And I felt the same way, but we both kind of made a bunch of excuses why we, we were not able to do that, you know. But we ended up talking to the pastor. And, um, I just see what you're talking about, about the, um, you know, where the Lord just brings you to where you're able to do it, you know. And tomorrow first night of doing it, and I still like, I don't want to do it, I want to do it, but, <laughs> and then I was thinking, and then, like, we went to the meeting to go do the Sunday school class with the kids, so now I'm thinking, you know, like, yesterday I was driving, I'm thinking, here we are, you know, the Lord just opened the door, we're like, we're going to have an opportunity to work with the little kids one a month out of the year, I do TNT, um, I work with the, um, the fourth, fifth, sixth grade kids. My wife works with the second, third, or fourth, or whatever years those are. And then here we'll have the teens too. So it's almost like we're going to, like, if as long as we're obedient to the Lord and everything in the future, you know, we can have these kids minister to them while they're young, mm -hmm. have them at church um, on Wednesday nights, be with them on Sunday morning, have them at church on Wednesday nights, and then when they're teenagers, have them in our home. You know, and just seeing the whole thing, you know. And yeah. As you were talking, I was just sitting here thinking about that. I was like, man, what a blessing that would be when I get older and how I look at even like you and Kendall and Moana. Um, and, you know, he had like your daughter was in his Sunday school class and then she was a helper, you know, 20 years later. And just uh, how the Lord works that all out. It's pretty awesome. Just, just be careful. You might be called to the nursery. My wife reminds me of people she had in the nursery, and says now that now they're getting married. <laughs> okay, so Messiah's calling is being brought out. We mentioned who's being spoken to, and that they're told to pay attention. And Messiah is the one speaking, and the fact that mentions his mother, and so this is not a nation. It's his. It mentions his mother. Now, I do want to comment about that for a moment. There are churches that make a whole lot out of Jesus' mother. And she was blessed, but also she bore a lot of heartache in giving birth to Jesus. She is not a mediator between God and man. 
Okay, there, Hebrews tells us there's one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus. And so I want us to recognize here, while it specifically mentions his mother, I think that's indicating that this is Messiah and not a nation. But it's not trying to emphasize Mary as being something that she's not. She is not a mediator between God and man. She is also not the queen of heaven. How many have heard that phrase before, the queen of heaven? How many know where it came from? Okay, it's mentioned in the Old Testament, but is it mentioned as a positive or a negative? A negative. Yep. I don't plan to take us down through it. It's been a number of years since I had researched adequately on it. But the idea of Mary being the queen of heaven came from paganism. If you remember in Revelation it talks about Pergamus. If I got my churches right, Pergamus was the church that was married to the world. The Roman Empire was crumbling about 300 AD, if I remember right. And part of the way they thought they could save the Roman Empire was mixing Christianity with all these pagan religions. And I believe personally, and I don't expect everyone to agree with this, but in the things that I've seen, the Roman Catholic Church has propagated a lot of the paganism. And one of those things is having a queen of heaven. And I'm not going to go back to all the pagan roots because I think that's getting off topic. But I think it's important that as it's mentioned here that Messiah's mother is mentioned, the fact that this is talking about a person, not about a nation. I think it's also important that we recognize that his mother, when we get to heaven, will just be like any one of us. While she was on earth, she had the special assignment of giving birth to Messiah. But Messiah is the focal point, not Messiah's mother. And so... Here it mentions the fact his name is going to be mentioned while he's still in the womb. And so that then brings us to what is his calling? What is he going to be doing? And so he has a name while he's in his mother's womb. And his calling is from Jehovah. But what's involved? What is his calling going to involve? And so there's a whole number of things that are mentioned here in verses 1 through 3. What do you see Messiah's calling to be? Okay. If you look at one of the first things is his name. And so that mentions the fact that his name is very important. Uh, it means that God saves. His mouth is his weapon. This is what Linda's getting at and what she just talked about. He's not going to come like other conquerors where they have 
a sword and shield, but rather his mouth and his word is going to be his weapon. What else does Isaiah tell us about Messiah? And really, it's Messiah saying what God has, has done for him that's being proclaimed here. Okay. He's kept hidden and protected by Jehovah. If you look in verse 2, it talks about his mouth being a sharp sword. But it says, in the shadow of his hand, the his, I believe, is referring to Jehovah the Father, hath he hid me. And then it mentions, he's made me a polished shaft. Okay, he's kept hidden and protected by Jehovah, but then it's mentioned that he's this polished shaft. I don't know about you, but when I read that, what I envisioned is little boys playing cowboys and Indians. And the boys would have maybe a rubber band gun for being the cowboys. And the Indians, they would take sticks and they would put string on it and they would take another stick and make that into an arrow. Now, how good do you think that bow and arrow was that little boys made with the bow and the string? Pardon me? <laughs> I think Steve's telling me he'd prefer the rubber band gun that he wants to be the cowboy. No, no, I want the arrow and bow. Oh, you want the arrow and bow? Actually, I think I could make a better rubber band gun as a little boy than I could a bow and arrow. But when I think about that, the bow and arrow, you know, that, that arrow is this crooked stick. Now, how well do you think that shot? Probably not very good. To the benefit of the boys that were the cowboys, you know, that, you know they didn't get shot very much. I contrast that arrow then with the kind that you can buy in, in a sporting goods store. And the arrow is just so straight. And I don't know how they polished them back then to make them straight, but nowadays they have some pretty impressive looking arrows. Steve? So when I was a kid, we would make them out of palm tree branches and um, bamboo. Okay. Okay, so Steve remembers some, uh, some straight arrows that they could make as kids. But if you go to a sporting goods store, first of all, the bow itself, they have some impressive compound bows. But then they have arrows that are polished, and on the end is this nice you know, tip that's made out of steel and is sharp. And... You look at that bow and arrow and you say, a guy that practices, whatever he aims that at, it's gonna hit. And so I think the important thing that's being made here is Messiah is gonna be just like that polished arrow. He's gonna hit exactly whatever God aims him at and there won't be any misses. The other thing that I thought about on this was when I was growing up, I worked with a man that liked to hunt. And he liked to hunt with a bow and arrow. And he passed away, went to be with the Lord. 
some number of years ago. But as part of the memorial service, they had this picture of him holding a bobcat. I guess it was a bobcat. I don't know other than bobcats what kind of cats there are in Florida. And he had hit that with a bow and arrow. And I thought about what it took to do that. And about that time, his wife said to me, she said, yeah, that picture, I think he was more excited about hitting that bobcat with the bow and arrow than he was on our wedding day. And so all of that being said, for us, shooting that bow and arrow may be a lucky shot. For him, it probably was a little better than luck. But for God, he's going to hit exactly what he aims at. And whatever Messiah is pointed at, that's what he's going to hit. And so Isaiah uses really the things of that day and age. That was a popular weapon in armies, was the bow and arrow. And he uses that to highlight the fact that Messiah is going to be able to hit whatever God aims him at. And then again, it mentions that he's going to be kept hidden until he's supposed to accomplish his task. It says, in his quiver hath he hid me. And so Messiah is going to be doing these tasks. And verse 3 is the one that really, when I read it, it kind of puzzled me. It says, and he said to me, talk about Jehovah saying to Messiah, thou art my servant. And then it says, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. I had to read that multiple times because I was like, well, I thought we were talking about Messiah. But yet here it says, O Israel. And if your brain works kind of like mine, you're trying to reconcile these things and they aren't coming together. And so I liked what one commentary said. I'll pass it on to you. It says that might be better said, you are my Israel in whom I will be glorified. Messiah, God's servant, is going to function as Israel. This servant <clears throat> will be for Israel and the world what the nation Israel could not be. Every time Isaiah is talking about Israel. He brings up the fact that they're blind, they aren't faithful, they're not trustworthy, all these different things. Why? Because they're just like today, the church. We're made out of the same stuff. That verse that I mentioned to you about the heart and forsaking God, it can be said about all of us. It can be said about Israel. And so if God were to say, this is my church, my servant, would he say my faithful servant or would he say my unfaithful servant? If we really were to answer that, when, it, when you look at all of Christendom, the answer is my unfaithful servant. Whereas Messiah is the faithful servant. And so he's going to do what Israel can't. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, I agree. Yeah, Lynette brings up something that every so often I try to make sure we, we emphasize, and it's worth repeating here as she's brought it up. Israel and the church are two distinct entities. Israel are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The church is Jew and Gentile alike that has accepted Jesus Christ. And the two are not interchangeable. The promises made to Abraham are to him and his descendants, not to the church. Now, the church has its own set of promises in the New Testament, but the two are not the same. Linda? Yes and no. Okay, the yes part is they're both chosen by God. In Messiah's case, he's the only begotten son of the Father, you know, Jehovah. He is faithful. He is true. Israel isn't. And like we were covering in the last chapter, Messiah and Jehovah are one and the same. And they're going to purify Israel for his name's sake, not because of what they're doing. And so we have to remember that Israel, just like the church. My point is that yeah. he always forgives them because they're his chosen. Okay. Well, his anger is poured out upon them for their sinfulness. And it also does not mean that every Jew is going to be a saved Jew. I think when we get to the millennium, you know, all those that enter in will be saved. But there will be many Jew and Gentile alike that basically will be destroyed before the millennium starts. Um, and so we have to be a little bit careful on how we look at that. Messiah is a faithful servant. He will not have any sin. He will not have anything that is unfaithful to what his task is. And that kind of brings us to Messiah's response. So I kind of like what Linda brought out. His mission is to do what Israel couldn't do. And I think that's what verse 3 is really focused on. But look at his response in verse 4. Then I said, so this is Messiah, I have labored in vain, I've spent my strength for naught and in vain. What does that sound like? Say that again. Okay. So he was rejected. In fact, we're going to see in chapter 53 of Isaiah that that's even more pronounced and, and even more detailed. But this is Messiah's thinking. What does it tell you about Messiah's thinking? Okay. He's going to do what the Lord wants him to do, but what does he think about it? 
Okay, he feels like he's spinning his wheels. Okay, he's human. And so in his humanity, we're seeing his response here. In his deity, it's one thing, but in his humanity, like us, he basically is saying, my labor and my strength, all of this is vain. It's all futile. Everything I'm doing just doesn't seem to be worth it. Think about someone that's been a pastor at a church for 20 or 30 years and he's watched the, the culture invade his congregation over the last 10 or 20 years. Be easy to get discouraged. I've preached my heart out and it seems to be futile. Worldliness has crept into the congregation. The children have went off and they don't come back. I mean, Steve mentioned the idea of watching them grow up. One of the difficulties is, is watch them go off to college and not come back. Uh, not just for parents, but for a church. How do we keep our young people from going out and having to deal with this world and yet stay faithful to what they've been taught in their Christian beliefs? Messiah is struggling with that. But then what does he say which changes his focus? Same verse, what does he say? Okay, his trust is in God. So in his humanity, he sees the labor and his strength failing, that's vain, futile. But then he says, I'm going to trust in God. Steve? Okay, really if you think about it, we can look at what we believe God has called us to do. We can have the same feelings that is described here. You know, I've, I've labored in vain, nothing's been accomplished. And then when we look to God, we basically say, God's going to judge the worth of what I've done. And that's what Messiah is saying here. When it all comes down to what I've done, I've obeyed God, and he's going to be the judge of what it's worth. Okay, when it comes to his second coming, it won't feel the same as his first coming. The first coming was in humility. The second coming won't be in arrogance but it'll be in majesty and power. And people will get to see some of the splendor of God, but I don't think it'll be the same. And so ultimately, he says, my work is with the Lord, the last phrase in, in verse four. And so he's basically saying, the reward, the recompense, the compensation, whatever word you'd like to use there, that's with Elohim. That's with God. 
the Father, and that's where his trust is. And so we get to see his humanity, but we also get to see his humanity. He focuses his trust in the Lord and God the Father. Well, we are out of time. I'm sure the hallway will get noisy if we continue on any further. Next week, we'll pick up in verse 5 and continue on. And we'll be looking at Messiah's mission because it describes that as part of his calling. Let's close, please, with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for sending your only begotten Son so that we might have forgiveness and that we might have peace with you. Father, as we study this passage in Isaiah, help us to have a deeper appreciation for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray now for the service that follows, that Jesus would be exalted, honored, and glorified as we seek to worship him because of what he's done for us and his love for us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.